Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, it's a great day here at the Cinema Drip Podcast, as we continue on with our Nora Ephron Blend of the Month to look at When Harry Met Sally. And I gotta tell ya, I'm really excited for this one. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I, I was sitting down watching it. One of the roommates came in and said, oh, I love this movie. So we ended up watching it together. Um, you, you almost forget how short it is. It's, it's a crisp 90-minute movie. It is a crisp 90 minutes. It's only, I think if you look at it, the actual timeline itself, it's maybe 95, but that includes credits at the beginning and the end. So the movie itself, pretty tight. And I for like here's the thing I'm actually not that well versed in other things that Billy Crystal has acted in, and yet I know who Billy Crystal is, so it was lovely because we've both seen this movie before. Yes, we have. And so it was nice seeing Billy Crystal again. I think for a lot of people of our generation, frankly, Billy Crystal is Mike Wazowski, <laughs> the voice from Monsters Inc., and we're not. He, he's not someone who really endured into the 2010s and the 2020s in the same way that he did in the 80s and the 90s. So this is really one of my big touch points with him as well. I've also seen City Slickers, another big movie of his um, shortly after When Harry Met Sally, also with Bruno Kirby, funnily enough. But really, this is it for me. It's, it's this and Mike Wazowski. So... Given that, I did want to. I, I I wrote down in in the in in the notes a very specific thing. Because when Harry met Sally, is sometimes referred to as like the grandfather of rom-coms, the granddaddy of 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 all the tropes and the lines. Like, frick, what what what's the the? the I'll have what she's having. Exactly. <laughs> yup. That's a that's a that's a thing. Um, there's more. Why can't I? I just watched this movie. Just in terms of recalling specific lines of dialogue? That are so incredibly obvious, but they did this before anyone else was doing it. Yeah, I mean, the, the dialogue itself, I think, is, is quite well written. I'm a fan of this script in particular. And it is one of the key aspects that helped kick off this sort of modern resurgence of the rom-com. Where obviously, when Harry Sally is not the first rom-com, but... Like you said, I don't know if I call it the, the grandfather of rom-coms, but it's like the, the mommy or the daddy, whatever you want, of the current form of the rom-com as we know it. Right. It's building off of... I heard Screwball another, comedies. Yeah, screwball comedies. And more recently, or you know, contemporary to it, Woody Allen movies. But obviously, he's not a, a fun figure to talk about these days. But people, reviewers at the time, criticized When Harry Met Sally for being too similar to movies like Annie Hall or Manhattan. And so... Related to, but doing something different than Woody Allen and other romantic comedies at the time, but really launching what we would come to understand as the rom-com in the 90s and 2000s. I wanted to talk about those trips, and that's how I wanted to frame the beginning of this discussion. Without reviewing the movie, what are the tropes that we see here regarding rom-coms? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kick us off, because, oh... Frick, plot synopsis. Yeah, we probably need that for anyone who has not seen the movie. Cool, so Billy Crystal stars as Harry Burns and Meg Ryan stars as Sally Albright. And they are two people who one day, as she is moving, as both of them are moving to New York, share a car together, 
and they do not see each other until five years later. And then after that, they do not see each other again for another five years. And in this time, we're both growing in their careers, growing in the relationships with the people around them, and start to um, develop a friendship later on that has definitely the underpinnings of romance. That's, I feel like by calling it a rom-com, you know what happens at the end. Yes, at this point, hard hard to not know the ending of When Harry Met Sally, but you probably know where it's going, and, and still, it's about, the, it's about the journey. It's about the execution. Now, given that, it, it, it has a very important trope to me, which is men saying that men and women cannot be friends because one will undoubtedly get attracted to the other, which ruins all forms of friendship, which has basically been parodied, not parodied, it's basically, at this point, not even a trope, more so like an expectant cliche, that the two people you're talking with, maybe they have shown some romantic interest with each other, but they, they acknowledge that they're just friends and that the only thing that they want to further is their own friendship. And we know how that goes most of the time. And funnily enough, it's actually a, it's an idea that a lot of people making romantic comedies would turn on its head in the 90s and 2000s with the rise to prominence of the gay best friend character. (laughs) Yes, men and women can be friends so long as the man happens to be gay. And... Obviously, that is a, that's a trope that sometimes works and gives us a fun side character. Sometimes it does not work, and it, it's been criticized for you know just using a person's sexuality as you know making them a stereotype, basically. But it is a way that other movies skirted around that question. So while the woman is trying to figure out if she wants to go with the main romantic lead or not, she also has this other man who's no romantic threat that she can go vent to or bounce her thoughts off of what other tropes what other tropes well i'm trying to think here i mean really one of the main tropes obviously is that they don't get along at the start (laughs) which is uh, has of course been used repeatedly in very few movies even even sometimes sequels with a couple that we already know like in a bigger franchise very infrequently will the couple not be in conflict and have to surmount it so by introducing them at the beginning of this movie multiple times and, and not having them even part as friends, let alone as a romantic couple, I think that's a obviously very common trope that Nora Ephron is using. I think setting it in New York is a big deal, obviously. Yes. Again, that's one of the reasons it was compared to these Woody Allen movies is using New York and, and Manhattan, the Upper West Side, as its setting. Pretty well. Like, New York very is well. definitely alive in this movie. Oh, also, many of their discussions talk about gender dynamics in relationships. That's like one of the main things that they talk about. Uh, I don't think this movie passes the Bechdel test. We have to think. Yeah. I don't think so. Unfortunately, <laughs> Sally and her friend Marie, who is memorably played by Carrie, Carrie Fisher, Fisher rest in peace. Yeah, they are usually either talking about Sally's romantic life or Marie's kind of hilarious romantic life. So I, I don't think it passes the Bechdel. <laughs> hey, he, he's, he never left his wife. Never left his wife. He's never going to leave her, Christian. He's never going to leave her. Uh, okay. What, what, what else? Oh, there's the, there is the one night stand. Finally, between the two leads where they're like, I think that this was a mistake. 
which honestly that feels like that that's a if we can call a spoiler out from this plot that's kind of a bigger spoiler than the fact that they end up together you know it's that a pretty interesting moment in the plot and then i'm i don't know it'll be maybe fun to talk about it more once we're actually reviewing it it's it's also kind of i don't know i think that's also a trope that isn't always used nowadays Right. Or at least it's definitely a sexuality has evolved. Yeah, I, I mean, when Harry Met Sally is very, I guess you could call it sexually charged, not in that there's a ton of nudity or no. a ton of on-screen sex, but the characters are constantly talking about sex. Yeah. And it's, it's not entirely foreign now because, of course, it's much more mainstream to have these kinds of discussions or conversations in your movie. But it's something that is, to my understanding, a bit of a departure from where romantic comedies were at the time or have been in the past. Obviously, with screwball comedies, there was very little discussion of sex. It was all hinted at and, and winked at. And then you get into some different types of romantic comedies in like the 50s that were called sex comedies. But they didn't, of course, usually feature any on-screen sex because it was a very repressed time in Hollywood. So No, but this movie... A lot of talk about sex, faking orgasms. Of whether, course. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I like, thought what she <laughs> um, What it is that, that, that goes into it, whether marriage ruins the sex that you can have with someone. Um, it's all... Yeah, it's, it, and there's a lot of that there. Um, let's, let's, let's go into a review. So I have your opening question. Are you ready? Um, yeah, I am. Cool. So, the strength of the romantic comedy undoubtedly hinges on its leads. You can have a killer script, you can have a killer director, you can have a killer setting. If you don't like the two leads, it's, it's probably not going to work well for you. Now, when you think of the relationship between Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, did their chemistry work for you? Here's the thing, I know it did. <laughs> I was going to lean on the microphone and say, yes, Christian. So, what part of their chemistry worked for you? What part of their chemistry worked for me? I these two are so perfect together, and I, I'm trying to think about what actually specifically works about it. I think it's the two personalities that they embody for these characters. Where Sally is a little uptight, obviously she likes things the way that she likes them, and therefore is a little less emotionally charged, and she's not prone to impulse, she's not prone to uh, spur-of-the-moment kinds of things, whereas Harry is very different from her, although he is uh, much more type B, he's much more laid back, he is a little more free with his life, and he's the kind of person who is just very frank about sex and about men and women. He's not always right, of course, in the things that he's saying, but He's confident in what he believes, which can be super annoying in that kind of person. Uh, but he believes in himself. Yes, he believes in himself. But I, I think the the meshing of those two personalities is what makes the movie work. And when you have Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan arguably giving some of the best performances of their lives, embodying these people and really building this will they won't they kind of relationship, it's so easy to fall in love with them. So the thing is, is that both of them are crazy. Like, le le legitimately, both of them are high-strung individuals. Crazy. <laughs> I've gone crazy. No, they're crazy. So the, the, the fun part of that was, was kind of like, you know when you have two friends who are awkward 
And if they were to end up together, you'd be like, that makes sense. Because yeah. awkward gravitates to awkward. That's that's how it feels. Like, they're both exceedingly different. Yes, in, in, in even, you know, yeah, the Meg Ryan ordering food, the, the Sally ordering food and taking an hour, and, and Harry basically, like, pointing at something. But they're both... They, they, they have this confidence that they know how the world works and they know how relationships work. And as they have continued in the world and in their own relationship, in their own friendship, they realize that they are wrong about many different things and get surprised together. And it, it's that growth that you see come from both of them at the same time that I think is just crucial in this relationship. I, the, the growth piece especially is what's the most fun to watch in some senses. I, I just think that starting this movie off, I, I should say, Nora Ephron writes this movie in a really strange way where we get a scene, like you said, of them. They're we leaving. get the talking heads first, I right. think. Right. We, so we, we get these talking heads interspersed throughout, these real-life couples who sat down to be interviewed for the movie. And then we see them leaving college. They both graduated and are moving to New York City. We get 10 minutes with 21 and 22-year-old Harry and Sally, and then five years later, we see them again. We check in with 26 and 27-year-old Harry and Sally at the airport and on an airplane. And so we spend 20, 25 minutes not even seeing the full-grown versions of the characters that we're going to be spending the rest of the movie with. And we get them for the bulk of the runtime, of course, but we see the ways that they that their friendship even makes sense. And we don't really wonder, you know, Harry and Sally, well, Harry and Sally's a great romantic comedy, but why do they even, why are they even friends? In real life, Sally's not friends with Harry. But because Efron writes this movie in the way where we get this very we long get the backstory. Beginning, and yeah. we get the, the, the five year later, re, you get reacquainted with each other, and then five more years until they have anything resembling, I don't know, lives that are near each other and we see that what they grow from basically where i would say maybe harry does a bit more personal growth in between his first meeting with sally and when they begin their friendship but they both get to see more of the world go through some life changes and find each other at a very interesting point in their lives of course and it works so beautifully just in terms of setting them up as characters and giving us a foundation to work off of so I, I, I mean, I put this on there. Did the talking heads work for you? Absolutely. Yeah, they're pretty cool. They're so funny. <laughs> and so cute, too. Like these little old couples sitting down to talk about their love for one another. So precious. Which isn't... And, and these, these talking heads are not... It's like sometimes they're exceedingly precious. Like we realized we were born in the same hospital a week apart. And we grew up right next to each other but didn't meet each other until this time. Yeah. And sometimes they go... We got married, we got divorced, I married another woman, was with this other woman, was with that other woman, and I was with this woman when I re-saw her and realized I loved her, and so I remarried her. And I go, yeah, that, like, they, they seem real. They seem like every couple's, like, way to get to a certain point is different. Yeah, I, I checked my work here. So, these stories are real, but the people relaying them are actors. So, cool. I got that wrong a little bit, but... Even so, these real stories of real life, for the most part, older couples. People that we see closer to the end of their lives in the beginning, and, and often people who've been together for a long time. I, 
and I, I love that one couple where the man and the woman are talking over each other the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're telling the same story, but they're just both basically repeating each other. I, I was trying to think about, you know, what's the actual purpose of these talking head interviews? Aside from just it's fun to watch these stories. It breaks up the action a little bit. But I really think Efron, Efron's goal in writing them and, and Reiner's goal in including them in the final product of the movie I should say, directed by Rob Reiner. I don't know if we've mentioned that by this point, but uh, as they're making this movie, it, it seems like they included them to give it a sense of almost realism, uh, of grounding Harry and Sally's relationship in a way that previous romantic comedies maybe didn't, obviously, where sometimes it's like a romantic fantasy land where these two people find each other and fall for each other, and it's all magic. Whereas Harry and Sally, they were trying to argue, found each other in the real world. And there's this sense of realism to including these real stories from other couples who are completely unrelated to the two of them. And of course, I mean, not a ton of spoil here in this movie, but careful proceeding, I suppose. But the movie ends on Harry and Sally giving an interview, even though, of course, they are fake people. Once again, you have these actors reading the stories of real-life people. In a way, it's... Sort of Efron and Reiner saying, well, this is a real story. And even though it's being read by actors and we just watched the movie, this could have happened to anyone. This, this is. It could happens. have happened to anyone. Um, now, look, look, I think it's really funny to be like, this is the same writer who co-wrote Silkwood. Yes. <laughs> it's because very different. Tonally, they are exceedingly different. Yes. And I'm trying to find where the similarities are, and the main thing that I come to is subtlety. Like, at no point does Nora Ephron try to whack you over the head with pushing their relationship forward. It feels exceedingly natural. As, as much as this is a 90-minute movie, it does feel like it's taking its time. We do get the beginning. We do get the odd meetup before they are next to each other. We do get the time that they spend as friends, trying to set up their friends with each other, seeing that their friends have moved in together and are getting married. New Year's, great New Year scenes in this, but they're 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 slight. They're 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 they're. I, I mean, honestly, maybe it's just that that Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, and honestly, Carrie Fisher, Bruno Kirby are are popping off the screen. Yeah, I I listened to it. I haven't finished it yet, but I have listened to this episode before when I previously watched the movie. But a uh, podcast called The Rewatchables mm-hmm. that, that looks at movies, usually from this time period, 80s, 90s, that are considered rewatchable and, and talks through them. Less of a review, much more of just a fun conversation about movies we love. And one of the hosts on that episode described, said that she's seen this probably 500 times because it's just so easy to turn on late at night. She has insomnia. She'll just turn the movie on and fall asleep at some point. And she said it was good for that because it's a really quiet movie. Not in that it's this quiet, stirring drama, but in that it's just fun and lighthearted and very rarely raises the decibels. There's a a horn that's honked at the very beginning of the movie, and and then there's the scene where Sally is moaning in the deli. And those are really the two moments where the volume peaks. The rest of it is just people having conversations, rarely even yelling at each other. There's, There's not a ton of... Yeah, there's not a ton of, of really heightened emotion. It, it's so much more natural and, and I guess, real, as opposed to these 
big romantic fights, these blowouts that we get in so many movies, but that ends with a couple forcefully making out with one another. And we get that a little bit here, but it, it's so much less so, so much more grounded. What I think is really interesting about this is also the editing. I loved it, and it's, it's, it's the obvious editing, editing that you get, like the split screens and the fade-outs and the fade-ins. But it's also, um, honestly, the voiceover narration over scenes of them just like going about their lives. There's definitely one point when there's a montage of everything that they went up to up to that point with their voiceovers there, just making you feel for them, making you really care about them, root for them. Um, there's some just like absolutely perfect moments of editing. Yes. Too like there's a per- there's a scene. Right when Harry and Sally meet each other once again, it's been another five years, so ten if you're keeping track from their college graduation, and Sally is walking around a bookstore with Marie, and they're talking about the end of her most recent relationship with uh, her her previous boyfriend in many years, and of course Harry is in the bookstore too, because of course he is, and they, they reconnect, and... Harry asks her something to the effect of, you know, they're, they're talking about how she just got out of her relationship. He is di- he's just got divorced from his wife or he's about to be divorced from his wife. And he sort of asks the question, you know, what went wrong for you? And instead of having the conversation continue in the bookstore, they cut right to the two of them, either in a restaurant or a cafe or something, continuing the conversation. And it's such a perfect moment because we, do, we don't know from a previous scene where they see each other in the airport... They're getting off their plane, and Harry asks her to have dinner that night after he's just been obnoxious to her on the plane, switched seats with the guy she was sitting next to, and kept asking her inappropriate <laughs> questions, like uh, about the sex in her relationship, or how she he knows that she's new to dating her boyfriend because he's dropping her off at the airport, which is another funnily insightful thing about modern life I don't necessarily agree with, but... We know that she declines him for dinner previously, and now we see they're finally sitting down to a meal together. And it's one of those moments where the editing is just, the cut itself is so perfectly placed and perfectly timed with the rhythm of their dialogue. And sometimes in movies it's lame, where characters are talking and they're telling one continuous story, but you can see that they're bouncing between locations or whatever, and it doesn't make sense that they would be continuing this conversation over a a lengthy walk or, or journey. But this, it just makes perfect sense that, that they say, hey, let's let's go grab a cup and, and we'll reconnect. There's this beautiful moment, and this is, sure, obvious editing. There's this beautiful moment when both of them, late at night, call each other. She's watching Casablanca. Harry asks, what channel? Yeah, what channel? And so we see them through split screen watching Casablanca. Then we get a cut to the camera facing them instead of the TV. And when they, they, they talk to each other, it's, it's beautifully well set up. Like, they are perfectly framed. And when she says goodnight, she turns off the light, and only half of the screen goes dark. And then eventually, the side of the screen that he is on goes dark. And which um, I wanted to mention, because I think the first time I saw this movie, I loved Billy Crystal more than almost any other part of it. This time that I'm watching it, I'm, I'm thinking more about the title. Like, the title here is When Harry Met Sally. So, when Harry met Sally, Harry's life changed. And and it's, it's definitely, you know, 
perfectly split between the two of them. They have equal amounts of lines. They have equal amounts of chemistry. They, they like, not one of them, you know, is equal having... Equal amounts of best friends. <laughs> equal amounts of best friends. Like, not one of them is taking precedence in the movie over the other. But it is how Sally, much more so, is, like, changing who Harry is and him realizing that in order for, like, the final speech of, like, the... I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that little crinkle in your nose when you you know I'm saying something crazy. As she's making the the scrunch in her nose. So that's that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. How how I I, I see much more Sally as like the instrument of change, and Harry much more so as like what is to be changed. Right, and and it's. The, the elements of their dynamic that from the beginning where they're talking about can men and women really be friends and he's so much more forward with how he just wants to basically sleep with women, not really sit with them after, just kind of get up and leave <laughs> once their evening is finished. And she's she knows that she's a little more, I guess, conventional or stereotypical, but of course she, she wants to remain with this person that she just given herself to and she wants to... As she says at one point in the movie, she wants to make love to someone when it's making love, not just having sex. And we see the ways, again, like you said, that, that Sally is the one who actually changes Harry. But we do see where Harry also changes Sally, too. And the, one of the most famous scenes in the movie is the one we've already referenced multiple times, where she fakes an orgasm at the deli while they're having lunch. And it ends with the woman looking over at her table and saying, I'll have what she's having. But that scene, I think, is mirrored to the earlier scene where, at the beginning, after they've left college and they're driving to New York, they stop at a diner for dinner Mm -hmm. on the way. And in that conversation, young Sally is so much more disgusted with young Harry, although he does have that first inkling of realizing, like, this is a really attractive woman, and he makes a pass at her, even though he's dating her friend at the time, who, of course, doesn't matter to them a few years later. But we see the ways that she has gone from so uptight in that first diner scene where she's taking forever to order her meal. She's specifying about what kind of ice cream she'd like with her pie and how she wants everything brought out to her. Later on, she's doing the exact math on the bill to get the exact right tip. And Billy Crystal, you know, Harry probably just threw a five on the table. But we see the ways how she is loosened up as well, where she's now out in public doing this extremely embarrassing thing in this room full of strangers. And although it's not dramatic, of course, she has loosened up. And not in a way that's that betrays who she is as a person. Of course, it's not necessarily wrong to be a little, to be type A, to be a little uptight or, or, or like things done a certain way. There's nothing wrong with that. But we see the ways that she feels more natural around Harry. He helps her ease up on her sort of grip on her own life. And she becomes a more relaxed version of herself in a way that doesn't that doesn't make, make it seem like the movie has to end with her being a totally chill girl for them to be in love. It, she just has to be a little bit more of herself as opposed to where she was at the beginning of the movie. Now, the first time you saw this movie... You said that's the fastest I've given a movie of five stars. Oh yeah, I was on Letterboxd like immediately dropping five stars on that bad boy. Can I ask what was the most poignant thing from your experience that led you to make this just like that claim? The most poignant thing? I don't know. <laughs> I I think honestly the ending 
like this movie leaves you in such a perfect place where you've seen the the whole history of these two people from meeting each other to growing apart to coming back together as friends in a moment of romantic sadness for each of them to building this relationship to having sex to fighting to finally deciding to go for it and it, it's just simply one of the best scenes in any like mainstream modern hollywood movie ever where new year's eve harry's sullenly walking around in new york sally's having a terrible time at this new year's eve party with marie and, and jess who is bruno kirby uh playing harry's best friend and Harry just makes this determination where he sees this couple kissing. He turns and starts to run towards where the party is. And it's it's so cheesy, of course. Like, every romantic movie ends with the man running for the woman. But it, it strikes you right in the heart because of how much you've fallen for Harry and Sally as characters and how much you're rooting for them to just get together because you know how perfect they are for each other. And he runs to her, and then he gets to make this unbelievable speech, because Nora Ephron is a god-tier screenwriter, and he drops the line. She's like, you know, why did you, why are you here right now? And, and he says, I came here because you know when you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to begin right now. And it's just this, like, un, like how did she sit there and write that line, just like at her typewriter, just like, that's pretty good, I'm going to put that in the movie. Like... I, how did she, How could she not be so self-satisfied with how good that line is? And it's like this beautiful speech. And it doesn't only... And it doesn't end with the countdown hits zero. Sally says, I love you, Harry. And they kiss. No, the countdown happens while Harry's giving this whole speech. And Sally looks at him and she just says, I hate you. I hate you. And that's when they kiss. And the way that this, this ending... They stick the landing so perfectly. It's a gold medal at the Olympics. Tens from all the judges. So perfectly done. It's not breaking the conventions by any means, but it's playing with them just enough that, it, that you feel so satisfied. I, I, I was crying again watching this movie last night all by myself. <laughs> like, it's just such a perfect ending. And obviously, a movie doesn't need a perfect ending to be a great movie, and movies with great endings sometimes don't, you know, don't belong to great movies. But... This is an example where it, you walk out of the theater or your living room feeling just so wonderful. Uh, and that ending is probably what gets me the most. The, the, I, I really love this entire movie. There's no scene that I would cut or trim. Like, it's perfect to me as it is. But that's probably the most, you know, heart-grabbing moment for me. It's also a movie that loves New York. It does love New York. And, and the reason I say that is because we start with them moving to New York. They are each other's first people whom they know who is going to live in New York. Another great line where they're they're deciding not to be friends because Harry has made a pass at her and it's obviously very annoying. And Sally just says, I guess, you know, we won't see each other more. And he says, that's a shame, you know. You were the only person I know in New York. And, and of course, they have not even gotten there yet. But so perfect. And I want to I I say that they, so that, that that's how we start. And at the end, when he says, you want your life to start right now. It's like they're in New York. They're at New Year's. It's the beginning of a new year. It's the end of the movie. But it's the beginning of everything that was set in motion from the second that they were both in that car. But that is... That's all I've got. 
I'm curious, Christian, because I, I like to stalk you on Letterboxd sometimes. Yes. And you've gotten good where you don't normally review movies until after our conversations because I come flying into your apartment at 7 a.m. like, how could you not like John Wick? But we, you know, you've, you've gotten better about that. But I did notice because, of course, we were both, we're both re-watching this movie. Yeah. That you gave it a positive but much lower star rating than where I have it. <laughs> and so I'm curious to you, because we haven't really talked about any of the negatives for When Harry Met yeah. Sally. So on rewatch, is this, did this did When Harry Met Sally grow in your estimations? Did it stay the same? And is there anything that you want to call out as maybe something that doesn't work for you? Because I also understand with movies, like sometimes there's a good movie you have no real problems with. It's just, it's fine to you. You like it, but other people love it. And I've had plenty of moments like that over the years with, with movies that you know, we've both seen, but I'm curious where you land with that. I mean, it grew in my estimation, absolutely. It, I'd probably knock it up half a star. The, I, I, I don't know, there's, there's, there's like nothing wrong with the movie at all. I really enjoy it. The only part of it might be that um, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm type A or type B, I just know that I'm crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh! And oh so boy. he's single, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I watch a movie about two people who are very, you know, high-strung and falsely confident, um, I can't. I guess maybe it's just that I would have related more if they were different personality type people. But that's a personal thing. That's, that's nothing to do with the movie. It's just, I, I don't find their relationship to be universal as much. I find the story to be universal, just not them. That's probably it. I, I think that makes total sense. And of course, even though When Harry Met Sally is very, I would say, maybe realistic, maybe naturalistic, whatever you want to say, you can see it happening in real life. Of course, it's still a movie. It's still a constructed romance. It's still there's still elements of it that don't reflect real life. And I think one of the funniest and still most valid criticisms of When Harry Met Sally is like a lot of movies from this time period, it presents like a fanciful vision of New York where it's the, uh, like, it's a bunch Yo, of white Everyone's white. white. Everyone's white and, and wealthy and like... They have so much money and yeah, we're not exactly sure what their jobs are. I know she's a journalist, yeah. but like what she does is, she is so up in the air. writes for New York Magazine. I think they mentioned that at the dinner scene where they're yes. on a double date with Jess and Marie, but Jess and Marie leave with each other. And he's like a, is he a paralegal or just He's a, a political consultant. Political consultant. You know, political consultant. And he's just always available. He's never on a campaign. He's never meeting with a They're councilman. They're never or... at work. They <laughs> never... Okay. It, 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 yeah, it is funny where these people have all this free time to go do whatever they want. And naturally, their jobs mean they maybe don't have to be sitting in an office exactly at 3 p.m. every day. But uh, it's... But still, you should like commute to work. Yeah, right. It's, it's part of fantasy. You know, we have to acknowledge some of these, these moments that aren't true to real life. Um... um. Maybe Billy Crystal got a lot of money in the divorce, you know, because she's, she's a lawyer, and so maybe she's yeah. working at a big firm, and, and she leaves them for another guy, so he gets a little extra. Big law. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand that there's elements to this story that aren't universal. I think that's a good word to, um, to call out. Uh, but in terms of romantic comedies done right, this is the apex for me. I, I don't think I'll ever watch a romantic comedy as good as this, except maybe until we get to next week's episode, but... This one... Have you seen it? Sleepless in Seattle? Yeah. Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I am, I'm an enormous 
fan of One Hair Miss Sally, and I'm glad to hear that things actually that actually grew in your estimations too. I'm glad that you enjoyed the, the rewatch. Now that being said, that that is that is the review, that is the show. Um, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. It wasn't beginning of January. I still don't think it is. I rented it from the library. I uh, yes, rented it from a, a video rental store. Shout out to the good folks over at Cinephile. It is not streaming right now, but it pops in and out of streaming services pretty regularly. I say I, the first time I Valentine's watched it, Day is was coming. Max. Valentine's Day is coming, and I'm sure somebody's going to get the rights to it. So <laughs> keep an eye out for it, folks. Now, yeah, that's that's it for me. And next week, can I can I ask you? Can we actually sit on one one last thing, Christian? Sure, sure, sure. One last thing, Christian. So, when Harry Met Sally, we're talking about it because it gets nominated for an Oscar. It gets nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Nora Ephron. Nothing else. Right, nothing else. And the framing of your kind of picks for this month was looking at Nora Ephron's three Oscar-nominated screenplays. Yeah. We thank the Academy for perfectly doing that so that it fits into a blend of the month. I will say, this is kind of a weird year for the Academy Awards. It's the year that Driving Miss Daisy wins Best Picture, which... To my understanding, it's a movie that I still haven't seen, but it's widely considered to be one of the worst movies to win Best Picture. I, I think for a lot of people, the particular relationship in that movie between Morgan Freeman's uh, driver and, and Miss Daisy herself, this older white lady, yeah. has just not aged very well, of course. It's not very prescient or, or thoughtful on the dynamics of those two people. But there's a lot of a lot of big directors and big movies at this year's Oscars ceremony. And do I'm the curious, right thing. Do the right thing. Also in the yeah uh, best original screenplay category here, not nominated for best picture, very famously. But we also have Steven Soderbergh's debut film, Sex Lies and Videotape, nominated for original screenplay. Woody Allen himself is here with Crimes and Misdemeanors. I mean, Daniel Day Lewis is My Left Foot. Daniel Day Lewis wins Best Actor for My Left Foot. We, Which I have yeah. seen a long time ago. I have not, so you're you're doing better than me there. But Dead Poets Society is a big winner this year, nominated for Best Picture, wins Best Original Screenplay over When Harry Met Sally and over Do the Right Thing. I think it's also Julia Roberts' first Academy Award nomination for Steel Magnolias. Julia Roberts, not nominated for Steel Magnolias. Yeah, Best Supporting nominated Actress. Nominated for Supporting Actress. Okay, yeah. you're right. You got that there. Um, what else? Tom Cruise nominated for Born on the Fourth of July, also nominated for Best Picture, and wins Oliver Stone Best Director. Uh, Driving with Stacey is not even nominated for Best Director, but it wins Best Picture. Kenneth Branagh, Henry V, he's here. But what, what was your question? Basically, if you could go back in time, would you slot When Harry Met Sally in anywhere else? And I, I can't say anything with much confidence because I haven't seen most of these movies, and the ones so, that I have, it's been a while. Yeah, like yeah, like yes. Dead Poet Society. So I'm curious what you would do if you could go back in time. Everything I say, I take with like a. I don't know. Take as you will, because I have not seen everything. I best editing for sure is like one of the first ones that came to mind, and I think I would also slot it in under best actor, best actress. I'm trying to think if Carrie Fisher could fit in for best supporting actress. <laughs> it would be so delightful if she could. But those are those are the five that come to mind. Yeah, what, honestly. The, if I could do things, I, I want to watch some of these Best Picture nominees because I like even Field of Dreams is a movie that's considered kind of a classic among a certain type of person. Like growing is, up in the Midwest, is that the baseball one? It is the baseball the, one. A lot, like a lot of people love that movie. Back where I come from in good old Ohio, but 
it's it's kind of a movie that I don't think it always gets nominated. Like it's this kind of heartwarming sports drama. To the best of my knowledge, maybe I'm describing it inaccurately, but even so, I, I want to watch these movies because to me, it's obviously it's insane that Do the Right Thing isn't in here. It's one of the best American movies ever made, and it's not nominated for anything except best original screenplay as well. Maybe one thing or supporting actor as well for Danny Aiello. But I would absolutely slot both that and when Harry Met Sally in Best Picture. I don't know what I'm kicking out, but I'm kicking out something. And to me, it's kind of a shame that it didn't win Best Original Screenplay. I think it's an absolutely perfectly written screenplay. But I, again, Do the Right Thing is incredible as well. And i got to watch some of these other movies. If I had to pick one more, I probably would slot Meg Bryan in for the, for the Best Actress side of things, as opposed to Billy Crystal, with much love to him. But... Obviously, we can't go back in time. I'm just, I'm just curious to see how you would have, uh, how you would have handled that because it's an interesting Oscars year with just how many enduring movies are present at the ceremony, and of course, the ones that have lasted the most, like Do the Right Thing, Sex Lies and Videotape, When Harry Met Sally, aren't the necessarily the ones that were the big winners, like Driving Miss Daisy, a movie that very few people from our generation talk about, especially talk about in positive terms. So. That with that being said, that's our show. And that's our show, folks. Next week, as alluded to, we're going to touch on Sleepless in Seattle, another Nora Ephron and Meg Ryan project here. But this time, Nora Ephron is finally directing herself. And she also gets to bring in Tom Hanks as her male lead. It's going to be a good time. As I mentioned, I have seen this one. I'm going to say I'm a fan of it. No need to hide behind that. But Christian, you're coming to this one for the first time? For the first time. Very excited for you. I, and I'm curious, especially because I think sometimes movies with um, uh, more adventurous writing or more, I guess, challenging central conceits, maybe, sometimes work for me and don't work for you. And so I'm curious to see how you, as a writer, think about this movie, because it's got a very <laughs> notable problem to the romantic comedy formula that works for me and some people criticize it for. But that, of course, is not streaming anywhere right now. So again, check your local library. It's rentable from Amazon. If you got a video rental store in New Year, go check it out. See if they have it. But that is our show. Until next time. So there are a few things that you can do to continue to support the podcast until we get Sleepless in Seattle next week. Number one, you can, of course, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review if applicable. Warms our hearts to see those five-star reviews come in. And it really does mean a lot. So it would be awesome if we could see some more of those reviews come in. You can also send us an email to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com, which we're regularly checking for some listener feedback. Love to get your thoughts on things, whether it is uh, top five for the, the top five that we're doing, or you want to shout out some of your favorite movies of last year because we covered that top 10 list, top 20 list a couple weeks ago. Or maybe you love a particular Nora Ephron movie that is not considered one of her best, something like Bewitched, and you want to shout it out to us. Send us in that email. We'd love to read it here on the show and, and keep you, all of you listening along at home here involved in the show. Uh, we also love your thoughts for future blends of the month. If there's movies that you want us to cover, maybe there's a new release coming up that you're excited about and want to do some homework with. So mention that to us. We've used listener ideas before for blends of the month and we greatly appreciate the support. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching, and I spy Christian to see if I can get his opinions before we record the show. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? No, just looking forward to next week. Just looking forward to next week, folks. Until next time, this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast. <laughs>